Good evening. Welcome to our inaugural dinner party. We're your hosts, Marie and Leah, and we're so excited to have you for dinner. Thank you for joining us to celebrate the 10th anniversary of one of the best shows in the history of television, NBC's Hannibal. Each week we'll recap one episode from season one, so we encourage you to revisit the show along with us. If you notice that any of our guests disappear from one week to the next, it would be quite impolite to ask any questions. Do try the sausage. So for our first dinner party slash episode, we're going to be talking about uh, episode one of season one, which is called Apertif, and it originally aired on April 4th, 2013. So we're talking about the pilot episode today. To start us off a little bit, why don't you tell us, Brie, when did you watch the pilot episode of Hannibal? What's your history with this show? If anyone is coming from fan club and has listened to any of our other previous podcast episodes, you'll probably recognize a pattern here in what I'm about to say. And there was a large period post the first season of this show where Tumblr went off and was obsessed with everything Mads and everything Hannibal. And I was that girl that was like, no, it's not that good. I don't understand why people are into that. I He's like old. Like, what are they even talking about? <laughs> That's hilarious to hear you say he's like old because you love old men. <laughs> but like, usually, like the collective audience's heartthrob isn't an older man, you know? True, it is anomalous, so, like, yeah. I was like, seems fishy. I also just didn't want to be a joiner. I was being one of those people. I was being you about Twilight, okay? <laughs> and <laughs> so when I finally got my ass around to watching Hannibal for the first time, it was after the entire second season was out. So it had been a while. I, I was very late to the game. And after the first episode, I was like, God damn it. <laughs> just as good as all these people were saying and the rest is history yes so you you'll go on the record saying you're a hannibal super fan right yes i will i can honestly say it's in my list of top three favorite shows of all time actually i'm trying to think of shows and honestly it is my favorite show it's my top it's my it's my number one i'll say it it's my number one favorite all right show. yeah i mean Brie and I talk about Hannibal all the time, and we had this idea to do a Hannibal a recap podcast, and then I was like, the 10th anniversary is coming up, and there is no one I'd rather do this recap podcast with than Brie, because A, Brie and I are great friends, established podcast co-hosts, and Brie is the biggest Hannibal fan I know. Like, she, <laughs> <laughs> she is a Hannibal encyclopedia, and I love it. Um, so... Yeah. Back at you. <laughs> Perfect co-host for this show. Yeah, I actually came to Hannibal as it was airing. I watched it uh, when it was new from the first season. Um, I'm because so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I am, but I, I was a massive fan of Pushing Daisies. And I remembered that show getting canceled was like the first time I remembered... That's the first, that was my first heartbreaking TV show cancellation. I can still actually make myself cry if I think about it too long. 
So that is what made me swear allegiance to Brian Fuller was Pushing Daisies. And so Hannibal was his next show after Pushing Daisies. So I was going to be there from day one because I had loved Pushing Daisies so much. And I also was a Mads Mikkelsen fan already. Um, so that one, two punch, I was like, of course I'm going to be here, which is interesting because I, I'm not, I'm not a Hannibal Lecter fan. I had not Mm -hmm. seen, uh, Silence of the Lambs. I hadn't read any of the books. Like Hannibal was actually. You've seen it since then. I've seen it since. Okay, good. But when I first. We have to stop recording right now and go (laughs) watch Silence of the Lambs. No, I love it. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Um, but when I was watching Hannibal, uh, this was my first kind of piece of Hannibal Lecter media. Ever. Wow. Um, but yeah, and I Baby's was hooked- first cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> and I was hooked from the beginning. It is a different show from Pushing Daisies, very much so. Uh, but there are, are also some interesting continuities too mm-hmm. um, that that might come out as we do our recap podcast. Um, but yes, I was hooked from the beginning with this show. I was a huge Brian Fuller fan as well. Like I loved Pushing Daisies, but I I wasn't like keeping up with his his career. So I didn't really like know that it was Brian Fuller until like I actually like sat down and decided to watch it. I knew it was Hannibal, obviously, because it's called Hannibal. And I watched Silence of the Lambs probably arguably at too young of an age and have always been obsessed with just I th- I think cannibals are so interesting in a very detached way. Like I would never like I don't think that they're I don't approve I don't condone cannibalism. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I feel like I have to say that <laughs> I don't condone cannibalism. It's a bad thing. Our intro's a bit. <laughs> <laughs> We're not actually eating any people. <laughs> FBI watching, listening, whatever. But I've always had like a fascination with like cannibal stories i I just it's such an interesting taboo to me i've always been like attracted to to the narrative and like how people react to it and it combined with the fact that like i love dark humor and i just that nothing goes better with dark humor than cannibalism it's always funny somehow and this is no exception and i think that's also why it was like a match made in heaven that brian fuller did this you also have talked to me about the way that you connected a lot to the character of Will Graham. Oh, yeah. And I think that will obviously come out as we're going through the episodes and doing our recaps. Um, I'm an empath. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I've always like hated that that was like a running like thing that people like wanted to like brag about being an empath or whatever. And it's like, that's so cringy, first of all. But, like, I think that it's a really good way that they show how empathy can be, like, a curse. And it just, like, it was it was very rewarding to see that on screen, to be like, oh, see, this is someone that's, like, not being praised for their empathy. It's, like, a terrible thing. And, like, it affects them very negatively personally, you know? And... So I I relate to that because I feel too much. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that can get us into our recap of episode one, because the beginning of this pilot episode starts with Will Graham, played by Hugh Dancy. And he is at a crime scene and 
we see his sort of powers of empathy in action. Right from the get-go, we kind of see how how Will's empathy works. Uh, and it's it's really visually arresting, first of all, the way that it's it's shown. And it is clear from the get-go that this is something uncomfortable and intense for Will, right? It's not a pleasant experience for him. And it's also not, it doesn't come naturally. It's not like something, like, I feel like that's, they could have gone down a much more cliche road as as they tend to do with crime shows and like made him just like very like snappy and like know it all and like quick to get everything and just like be like, I'm thinking like Sherlock and his mind palace, but they didn't. And they chose to to show Will obviously struggling with this. And it's something that he has to really kind of like open himself up to and expose himself to. And it's something that like clearly sticks with him. And it's something, so what strikes me so much about this opening scene is you see Will Graham is sort of reconstructing the crime in his mind. He's at the crime scene and he kind of closes his eyes and there's this effect um, that happens that you see on screen every time Will does one of these sort of reconstructions. And it's like, um, it's almost like a little kind of orange or yellow like windshield wiper that kind of goes like across the screen. Well, I'm thinking of one of those like music things yeah oh yeah like a a, um, metronome like a metronome yeah Yeah. or like the or like the um the hand on a clock or something yeah Yeah. i've always thought of it as like a metronome especially because of the sound i like that yeah and so then you you see will and he he narrates the crime right so he he's narrating what's going on but what happens is you see hugh dancy is the one reenacting the crime. So there's well, he's a like, and he's he's recreating it in a first person perspective almost. You know, he's describing what he's doing as the killer. Yes. And so there's this immediate visual way that the show shows you how experiential this is for Will, that he's not kind of watching the crime happen third person or kind of deducing what happened from some remove, that he is imagining himself as the killer and imagining himself committing the crime. And it's so visceral right from the start. Um, And it immediately sets Will apart from someone like, as you said, Sherlock, who, you know, you have the character of Sherlock Holmes has this deductive reasoning, and it seems like the character is, you know, has some sort of magical powers of being able to reconstruct a crime scene, and then he goes through and he shows you all the little clues that he put together. Right, exactly. But, But Will's process is so different from that, right? And immediately we see how different it is, and we see how as I said, experiential and emotional and first person it is. Um, And that was what I was struck by right away rewatching this episode. I was like, okay, right from the get go, we have this, this way of showing Will's empathy, his like empathetic powers that is so, yeah, just visceral. And I just really appreciated the fact that it wasn't done in a way that was kind of like, like glorifying what was happening you know like it's it's 
it just it it was it's very like rooted in reality in that way. It's not flashy. Right. And you can see immediately how this would take a psychic toll on Will, right? Yeah. Well, and that's <laughs> that's the best part about how it's Hugh Dancy too because he's incredible at showing us that that mental toll and immediately after we have the crime scene kind of recreated and he kind of like we see at one point um he is kind of taken out of his like vision of of reenacting this scene and he's trying to get a detail from one of the police officers that that's at the scene with him and he kind of like it's like an he comes back into his body and he's so uncomfortable and he can't he can't look at anyone and he can barely speak and there's just such a mental toll like a physical toll on his face that you can see and then that clings to him as he moves past and you see him in present day you know and that's also one of my other favorite parts about the pilot episode is that we have this very intense recreation of a crime and then it kind of like fades out to will is actually standing at a podium teaching this and talking about the fact that like this is something that happened in the past so this isn't even like a modern day crime this isn't even or not modern day this isn't even a like um something that's happening now like this something we don't even know when this murder took place or when he was investigating it or even if he did investigate it like it might have been something that he like read about or you know did i don't even know like Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. and so you you find out that uh will graham is now uh he teaches at the fbi academy and you come to find out that he works in some capacity with the fbi he's never been an actual fbi agent you find out later but he works as kind of a special consultant and the fbi essentially uses this this empathetic power that he has to help them solve crimes and uh which is so sketch right just from the start (laughs) like will should feel so used um (laughs) but it seems like will doesn't do this so much anymore he mostly just teaches Mm -hmm. um and the sort of plot of the pilot and the plot of the the season gets going in earnest when we meet the head of the behavioral science unit, Jack Crawford. He is played by Lawrence Fishburne. And he approaches Will Graham and asks for his help with this new case. There's a new case in Minnesota. There have been uh, eight missing girls and they found no bodies. Um, and so they, they're, the FBI is trying to figure out what's going on and, and Jack wants to call Will in. And it seems like Will hasn't helped with a, with an active case in a while. And he's never helped alongside Jack before. Jack has met, it's, the, it's set up that they have met at some kind of event. I think it was like the opening of a, what is it? He said it was like Evil Minds. Oh yeah, or... the museum, the yeah, museum some... of evil minds. Or yeah, and they had a disagreement about the way that Jack decided to name it. Um, but like that's kind of the extent of their history. But Jack knows of his skills and of his like reputation, so he's asking him if he would come into the field. And as he does this, we get kind of like the worst possible introduction to someone that you could have as like a neurodivergent person jack like walks up to will takes his glasses off 
right? Doesn't he take his glasses off? Okay. I'm like, I'm like so upset about it. I'm like, is this even how it happened? Or am I just like (laughs) stepping it up? You know, (laughs) he like takes his glasses off and like gets really up in his space. And like, it's just so uncomfortable. And then he asks him where he falls on the spectrum. Just straight up. (laughs) Yeah. He basically asks Will like, what's your deal like what's your he's literally like what's wrong with you yeah pretty much yeah he's like i know you're weird but how weird how disturb what's wrong with you and well bless him he takes it in stride he does he he gives his classic sassy answer where he they i can't remember if it's like if he's like referencing something that Jack said earlier, but he says like my horse is hitched closer to Asperger's than um, autistics. No, he says he's closer to Asperger's and autistics than like psychopaths. Is what than he's psychopaths, saying. Yeah. that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, so it's in this conversation that that Will kind of tries to describe his powers of empathy uh, because he says. He tells, you know, he tells Jack, you know, I'm not a psychopath. And Jack says, but you can empathize with narcissists and psychopaths. And Will says, I can empathize with anybody. It's less to do with a personality disorder than an active imagination. So he kind of plays it off a little bit. He's like, you know, he he can he can empathize with anyone. And that's how he is able to kind of reconstruct these crimes and and put himself literally in the killer's shoes. So Jack does get Will to agree to help with this case. And the two of them go to Minnesota and and kind of start investigating in earnest this case. And we get like kind of a firsthand um, view on how Will Ill on how Will interacts with other people because we meet the parents of the latest victims um, or the of the latest victim at their house. And they're kind of trying to get the story of when she disappeared, that sort of thing. And there's just a very awkward uh, interaction between the father and Will. And he ends up kind of like going over to Jack Will does and like whispering that the house is a crime scene because he he's figuring out that um well he uses the cat because the cat wasn't like hungry when the parents got home and she was supposed to feed the cat and so he's like well then she had to be taken here because the cat was fed and so then the house becomes a crime scene they go back to the bedroom and oh my god the girl is in her bed mhm dead she's dead but she's been returned to her bed yeah (laughs) Yeah. and and it's in these scenes that you it's in this scene that you start to really hear the way that will talks about these these killers Mm -hmm. and the way that he deeply understands them you know like he's he puts things together that other people can't because he empathizes with him he understands them on a deep level and so he and he's willing to 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 go there put himself in that mind frame and to to try to understand their motivations and um kind of why they're doing specific things you know and so that's how we find out that this body was put back as kind of like um 
reparation. Like they, the killer felt bad for killing this girl. And so Jack's kind of jumping to, well, is this the golden, is this the the girl that the killer was kind of meant to kill all along? Blah, blah, blah. Which is like, what a dumb thing to jump to. Like, Jack, (laughs) come on. I, Jack stresses me out, man. I, I like can't look at Lawrence Fishburne anymore because I just like don't like Jack that much. (laughs) And um, Will kind of doesn't, refuses to elaborate and you can tell that this has really taken a lot out of him mentally and he's just he's he's not able to kind of stay there and we see him like catch a plane and go home and i'm i'm guessing without approval from jack prior to to deciding to leave um and again he doesn't kind of give any like logical explanation for why he's saying this is an apology at this point and so we're kind of with jack and the rest of them being like so is he just like making shit up you know uh, but he's very clear that like the evidence explains everything that he says so like we do get eventually we get him to verbally kind of say what it is that kind of pointed him in this direction and so like that happens throughout the show is that we'll kind of be a little lost and be like, well, how did he get there? And then as we go on, it becomes more and more obvious. And then I think that it it works in a really neat way. And this is kind of getting ahead of of the specifically the first episode, but like not in any like super specific way. But like as you go on through the show, I think that you get more into Will's psyche and like more into Will's head where you kind of are, you're able to kind of start knowing where he's going before he verbally tells you. And it kind of gets in your head in a way where it's, it's kind of creepy because you're like, Oh, I get why the killer did this or did this. And then he like tells you about like the evidence and you're kind of like, Oh, I put that together. What does that make me like? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's very interesting to have a character like Will as the center of this show, which is um, definitely for the first season, very much a procedural kind of case of the week show. And it's it's about the psychology of these serial killers. And so it's it's very interesting to have a character like Will at the center of a show like this, Because Will understands these serial killers and he gets inside their heads and he gets you inside their heads too. Like he kind of works as an audience avatar in an interesting way. Um, And it, I mean, this show came out first, but when I, when Mindhunter came out later and I was like watching Mindhunter, it reminded me a lot of this show in certain ways. Because that's also a show that is so... Well, it's, you know, a fictionalized version of the creation of the behavioral science unit. And so it's also very obsessed with the psychology of serial killers. Um, but, uh, yeah. It's funny it's- because they're both vulnerable, like, more emotion-based main characters. But they manifest that in very different ways. Because, like, I don't feel pity for Will Like, even when he's, like, convicted later on, you know, like, I don't feel bad for him. I just have this sense that, like, he's going to get himself out of this. Whereas, like, the main character in Mindhunter, I'm like, boy needs help. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's a sense that Holden in Mindhunter is, like, in over his head. Yeah. And Will never feels... (laughs) 
in over his head. I mean, he is he is very empathetic and he is very emotional and he does make himself very vulnerable when he puts himself in this position, but he's also he's, incredibly strong. He's resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he there's an interesting sense in this show where everyone around Will besides Hannibal is so worried that Will is going to fall, fall apart, right? And you you get that um Later, you know, in this pilot episode with the introduction of Alana and you have uh, Jack kind of voices this a couple times, this, you know, worry or this doubt that Will is, you know, stable enough to work with the FBI in this capacity. Um, and everyone is, is just a little worried about Will. And it's interesting because as an audience member, I personally never Mm-mm. am that worried about him. I'm like, he's he's okay. He'll make it through. He's, he's, and you kind of get annoyed with the rest of the characters for constantly kind of underestimating him or, or just viewing him in this very like naive light, especially specifically Alana. It gets worse as the season progresses, but like in the beginning, she treats him almost like a, like a little brother that's, that's like helpless, you know, or like, or like a boy that she babysits, you know, and it just it feels very gross in a way that she's like clearly trying to not be gross about wanting to learn about him and his his empathy and that sort of thing because she's got like a psych she's a, a scientist, you know, so she wants to know what's making him tick, but she's also trying to respect that he's a person. Mm-hmm. She's a psychologist, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um. I didn't. I wasn't sure for a second, and that's why I said scientist because I was like, "Wait, <laughs> was she also a psychologist or was she a psychiatrist? I don't know." Um, but yeah, like everyone around Will, um, aside from Hannibal, treats him so delicately, and like he's gonna break any second. And you, as an audience member, never get that impression of him. Mm-mm. And I think partially that is Hugh Dancy's performance. Um, I mean, he does a great job of communicating Will's vulnerability without Mm -hmm. sacrificing that sense of his sort of iron core, right? Well, and they also do a very good job with, like, like dressing him and establishing his, like, his like more aesthetic character traits like he's very like salt of the earth like he fishes he's very like rough he he's not super um like he's kind of he does what he has to do you know and i think that a really good scene that we get in the first the pilot episode is after um coming home from the girl's house where he sees the last body he is kind of like well, we get an adorable scene where he brings home a dog, a stray dog, after he leaves the airport, and then he, like, cleans him and, like, like introduces him to his, like, pack of dogs, because he has, like, a bunch of dogs, and he lives, like, out in the country. <laughs> and um, then he, like, goes to sleep, and then we see him, like, wake up after having a nightmare about the body, and then, like... He just kind of like he's all sweaty and very uncomfortable and he just like goes and grabs a bunch of towels, like ratty towels, and throws them on the bed and then just goes back to sleep, like cuddling with like a ratty towel. And you're just so you're never like you never see him as like 
like a delicate creature. <laughs> you know, he gets by. <laughs> so then we get a lab scene at the FBI headquarters in Quantico. Quantico. <laughs> I think that is, that's the one, like, nitpicky thing I have about this show. Like, the only thing is I hate the little, like, digital text that appears on the screen where it tells you where you're at. Oh, the location Yeah, because it's just so procedurally, like... I know. Well, and we get it without them. Like, they're kind of redundant. Yeah. 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 Like, you show me the FBI building, and I'm like, I know we're in Quantico. I know. know. We got it. We got it. Thank you. Um, so we have this lab scene where the pathologists are looking at, uh, the corpse that, uh, the team recovered from Minnesota and Elise, Elise Nichols. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is her name. Yes. And they find that the liver is missing from the corpse or it was taken out. It was removed and then sewn back in and all of the other, um, none of the other bodies have been found the other seven girls so will puts it together he's like he's eating them this and there was something wrong with her and he couldn't eat her Mm -hmm. yeah so that's why he took the liver out and put it back in because there's something wrong with the meat is what will says and then the pathologist is like uh yeah she had liver cancer you're right so after this sort of revelation of of the this, of the killer that they're after being a cannibal, we get this wonderful cut from the lab to our very first glimpse of Hannibal Lecter. And the first thing we see is this plate full of food, this beautifully prepared plate of food, and someone is slicing a little delicate slice, and then the camera follows the fork all the way up to Hannibal Lecter's mouth. And he's lit so beautifully and aesthetically and it like casts like all of the like shadows on his face in like stark relief and you almost just see like his skeleton and it's like it invokes such a powerful image it's it's like it's very sinister but also stunning (laughs) and it's about exactly halfway through the pilot we have to go we go a whole 20 minutes before we get to see Hannibal Lecter. Um, and and they kind of, they give you like a little fake out, you know, because they they show, they pan to him directly after it's revealed that the killer that they're after is a cannibal. But they don't leave you hanging there for very long. So we finally have our introduction to Hannibal. And he is a psychiatrist that Jack is hoping to have examine will basically he wants hannibal to evaluate will uh without will's knowledge because will doesn't uh would not cooperate jack doesn't but i also don't know how jack thought he was going to be able to introduce the psychiatrist to will and have him not know that not be suspicious yeah like that's like (laughs) red flag number one like if you are not wanting people to like poke at your head and it's like hey have you met my friend who's a psychiatrist like yeah right um, and, and hannibal's <laughs> questions are a little leading to very like, pointed hannibal's not quite <laughs> playing it cool uh so hannibal and will meet for the first time at the fbi headquarters this is after jack has like kind of shown up unannounced at hannibal's office and 
like Hannibal's first like scene with dialogue, we have him with a patient in his his office. And it's so funny because it's like the world's worst psychiatrist appointment. Like Hannibal's a terrible he's psychiatrist. So bad. Like he's giving like the most awful advice and he's so disdainful of <laughs> the poor bastard that's sitting across from him like at one point he like tries to get a tissue and he like holds out his hand and Hannibal just like very reluctantly grabs the box of tissues from beside him and kind of like offers him one and then when he like balls the tissue up and puts it on the side table I thought he was gonna leap across that room and kill him right then <laughs> like the look that he gives that man like woo but also that's gross don't put your used tissue on a table that's not yours like i'm not saying he deserves to be killed but like was surprised that he lived as long as he did <laughs> no i i mean this this patient is a recurring character and i i put in my notes fucking franklin like he's exasperating <laughs> like i would i would probably like who knows how many appointments deep Hannibal's in with this guy. It's probably the same story every time, but like that's what you signed up for, Hanny. You can't you can't just you can't just do that, you know? <laughs> right, right. So Jack shows up at Hannibal's office and he says that Alana referred him. Um, but so there's it's, the connection. It's a a really interesting scene because Jack is such a combative person. That, like, when he first gets there, he doesn't outright say what he's there for. And, um, like, first gives the patient, Franklin, like, a heart attack because Hannibal has no couth. And he's like, oh, is this about him? Like, before I tell him to go. <laughs> and it's like, that the man just got through telling you how bad his anxiety was. And you're going to ask him that in front of this FBI officer. <laughs> like, what? And, okay, so he's like, no, it's not. It's about you. And so Hannibal is immediately on guard, you know, and he's like, "What? what's about me? And as an audience who is – the show kind of anticipates that you're familiar with the ca- character of Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, they don't play coy. They expect that you know that Hannibal Lecter is killing he's, and eating people. Yeah, so you know – out of like it's expected that you know out the gate that he's a murderer and so when he kind of gets very like cautious and on guard you're like okay so this is he's thinking that jack knows and then when they go into the office um well he makes jack wait outside and then when he lets him in um after you know making him wait outside for however long it seems like a while it seems like he made jack wait a while yeah it's a power play yeah <laughs> and then when he comes in like it, everything is kind of like carefully orchestrated so hannibal knows exactly where jack's going to go and where he's going to be and he kind of goes over to hannibal's drawings and like looks and picks up the paper that he's seeing and Jack, like, kind of reveals that he knows a little bit about Hannibal's past. And he's like, oh, so you got a scholarship for these, blah, blah, blah. And then Hannibal kind of picks up a a knife and a pencil and, like, is, like, um, and he starts, he says it in, like, the most threatening way that he, like, learned that a scalpel cuts a better edge on a pencil than a sharpener ever would. And it's such 
an intense moment and then it immediately deflates because Jack starts getting goofy and he's just like, I'm a big fan. Like, I like your work. (laughs) (laughs) Alana sent me. I need your help. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Mads Mikkelsen's performance is so chilly and especially in these opening scenes. Well, it's perfectly foreshadowed what we're going to get with the character of Hannibal when we have that first appointment with Franklin, like moments before. And he says to Franklin, you'll know when the lion's in the room with you. And that's like, Hannibal is the lion in the room. He is the capital L lion. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and, and one of the things that I love about the show is the writing. And one of the things that they consistently nail is all of these statements that Hannibal makes that are so threatening if you know who he really is, but they don't mean anything if you don't. (laughs) He's just, he's, he's really going hard for that, like hiding in plain sight approach. Like he'll just outright say the most off the wall things, but like, it's only really off the wall and threatening because we know what we know. That adds such a delicious humor because it's such a, um, like kind of like a dry humor because it's not something that like you're going to outright like laugh at. I mean, I did kind of like giggle a few times, (laughs) but like for the most part, it's very, it's a very like layered humor you know, and it's something that you just kind of like appreciate about it. Just stunning. 10 out of 10. (laughs) So then you have the scene where Will and Hannibal meet properly at the FBI headquarters. They don't hit it off. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Because Hannibal just starts poking him. Yes, yes, yes. He's like, why don't you want to look me in the eye, Will? What's wrong? (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong, buddy? (laughs) Right. And so uh, Will knows what's happening he catches on what's happening and uh, he gets really mad and he kind of like looks off to the side because again he's not fond of uh he's not fond of eye contact so as it's stated many times and um so he's looking off to the side and he it's kind of like vaguely in jack's direction and he's like whose profile is he working on (laughs) and he's so outraged and he gets like he gets so catty yeah, I mean, my I think my favorite line of the whole episode is when Will tells Hannibal, he says, or I think, does he say it to Jack or does he say it to Hannibal when he says, please don't psychoanalyze me, you wouldn't like me when I'm psychoanalyzed. And it's like, he's, it's like his version of a joke. Yeah, well, no, it's it's better because he, he says that, he's saying that basically to Hannibal, but looking at Jack, and he's saying, you won't like me when I'm psychoanalyzed. And then he's like, if you'll excuse me, I have to go teach a lecture on psychoanalyzing. (laughs) It's just, and he like stalks off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Hannibal is smitten. Yes, Hannibal smitten. But you can tell because he tells Jack, he's, he's saying he, after Will leaves, Hannibal tells Jack, okay, what Will has is pure empathy. And he's he's like, like, I already clocked him. I already know everything from that little interaction. Yes. So the way that Hannibal describes it, and I think the way that Hannibal describes Will's um, empathy is is one of the best descriptions of it in Mm -hmm. the show. And and he says, 
Um, what Will has is pure empathy. He can assume your point of view or mine and maybe some other points of view that scare him. It's an uncomfortable gift, Jack. Perception is a tool that's pointed at both ends. And like with that, you can see that Hannibal understands Will better than Jack ever has or ever will. I mean, it's kind of a recurring thing that Jack never understands Will throughout the series. Um, yeah. And he like brings Hannibal in to get his opinion and then like proceeds to just like not listen ignore it (laughs) i know i know i know so after this little consultation uh the next scene is little meet cute diagnosis (laughs) (laughs) the next scene is jack and uh, will are out at another crime scene they found another victim of this minnesota killer that the uh, they've started to call the Minnesota Shrike because he impales his victims on these antlers. And so there's a new victim that's been found kind of laid out in this tableau, impaled on these antlers. Um, the ninth- Will calls it field kabuki. Yes, <laughs> which I love. I love I so much. Um, so Will sees this victim, sees this murder scene, and he knows immediately that it is not the real Minnesota Shrike. He's like, this is a copycat. This feels totally different. And in a great way that shows how he's kind of still in the mind of the Minnesota Shrike killer, he's like outraged. He's offended. By it. Yes. He's, he's disgusted with this, like, this attempt at mimicry, you know? And he's like, this isn't even slightly the same. And he's he's so he's so mad and he kind of just like points out that that the strike like loved whoever killed Elise Nichols had love for her and felt strong affection and felt remorse for killing her and not being able to honor her, which is what he kind of kind of terms eating them is honoring them, you know. And he said whoever killed this woman thought she was a pig you know this is this is just an outrageous scene like meant to be found like they're they're mocking us or they're mocking this girl mm-hmm. right and and they find that the lungs are missing from this corpse and then there's this beautiful cross cut between um the i think it's my favorite out of the whole show like not the like not the episode but like out of everything like it's just a beautiful moment. It's beautiful. There's this crosscut between the crime scene and Will kind of explaining how it's a copycat um, and it's not the Minnesota Shrike. And then you see Hannibal butchering this pair of lungs and like just lovingly like cutting it up and cooking it and eating it. And that's when you realize, okay, Hannibal's the copycat. And he did that to get Will's attention. He's flirting. <laughs> this is flirt. This is murder flirting. <laughs> um, I feel like this. I guess this is a good time to point out that if you are a lover of the show but hate when people talk about them in a romantic fashion, this isn't the podcast for you. <laughs> this is your time to leave we're because we're going to talk about Hanagram now. <laughs> yep. Honestly, like even the actors are like, it's love. So get over it. <laughs> it's played romantically. <laughs> and and I think that this this next scene between Hannibal and Will, I think really underscores that. I mean it's it's a very cute scene. Hannibal shows up at Will's house with 
breakfast in his Tupperware because he's a, a meal prep king. And he, sh- <laughs> <laughs> he shows up with all of his Tupperware in his thermos because he's, quote unquote, very uh, careful about what he puts in his body. I'm like, okay. I mean, again, it's not a lie. It's he's not, a not lie. lying. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not what you would initially think that that sentence meant no you know? no so he brings breakfast to will and and he basically is trying to make a better impression he basically is like hey you know that didn't go down very well the other day you know um he's he's just trying to he's trying to get on will's good side right he's trying to get on will's good side and and this scene you can see hannibal start to kind of break through with will and and you can see how Hannibal's different with Will. Like, even within this first episode, in this pilot alone, you can see the difference between Hannibal's very kind of chilly demeanor with everyone else and his... He's so warm with Will. And it's not even warm, I wouldn't say, but you put it really well, Brie, when you said in most scenes, Hannibal acts like he's looking through everyone else. Like, yeah. he's kind of above them. He's not really seeing anyone. He knows he's better than them. He's just kind of aloof. But he focuses on Will. He's present. He's focused. He's interested. He's engaged just in a way that he's not with anyone else. And it's it's not anything that's like super obvious. It's that's another thing. Mads Mikkelsen does such an incredible job. Like I we could sing his praises for years. Like he's And we will. We will. And we will. <laughs> he's so incredibly talented. And there is such a subtlety in the way he performs as Hannibal. And it really is like it's almost like just in the eyes. He's able to portray this like very minute shift that occurs when Hannibal's talking to any of the other characters versus when he's talking to Will. And it's it's really interesting because he still has, like, the eyes of a predator, and he's still very, like, cold overall with Will. Like, nothing that much changes. It's It's subtle enough where it just feels like something shifted, but you can't really pinpoint what. Mm-hmm. And it's in the eyes. You're totally right. That's why it feels warm to me, because it's not, like, warm in the general sense of, like, how you would think about someone being warm with someone else, but, like, his eyes almost kind of, like, thaw a little Yeah, bit. that's a great way of putting it. His eyes, like, thaw out. <laughs> like, how do you do that? Like, he's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And, and Will starts to kind of thaw with Hannibal, too. I mean, one of the, the biggest We get the things- first time Will genuinely laughs. Right. Hannibal makes Will laugh in this scene and it's it's i'm kicking my feet like a schoolgirl. <laughs> <laughs> but again i mean that comes about when hannibal you know he makes a crack at jack's expense right i mean he's trying to get in with will and so he says um he he he's saying like you know i think jack's wrong about you essentially and and hannibal says to will kind of jokingly he says i think uncle jack sees you as a fragile little teacup the finest china used for only special guests <laughs> and that makes will laugh you know and again it's like hannibal actually sees will yeah. for for who he is and not who he thinks he is but in a way that stays very true to the character this is also done with the intention to kind of put a divide between Jack and Will. Oh, it's all manipulation. Yeah, yes. he wants to he wants to <laughs> kind of like get in between them and cause a rift. 
even though they're not even that close to begin with. But he wants to get between them because, like, you can tell from the very first moment where they where they meet, Hannibal is very interested in Will, and he kind of just tolerates Jack at this point. He's like, "You're entertaining me right now," and so we get this like very clear motivation of manipulation and he's wanting to cause them to divide but he also genuinely like believes what he's saying too and then it's such a good back and forth this scene in particular because like not only do we have like this moment where hannibal's kind of falling out to will and and realizing kind of what he wants out of the situation what he's trying to do with this manipulation we have will kind of like start to to banter back you know and so after that line about the fragile teacup and uncle jack he says well and it's almost coy he like kind of looks down and looks back up and he's like well how do you see me and like that's flirting it is and that's the thing (laughs) i mean i think that that hannibal is sort of a situation like interview with the vampire the novel where it's like never made explicit that it's homosexual but like it is and it's there and it's you can't really read it any other way like it's it's more than subtext even though it's not like explicitly stated that's how i feel about hannibal which is that as someone who has i've read the red dragon that's not in there at all so this is a pure show version Mm -hmm. um which i think adds such a oh it's part of the show's special spice for sure and that's the spice (laughs) that's why we have to talk about it because to my mind hanagram is like integral to the show and how it works like it's It's not not just a fun little ship like it's yeah right it's it's basically canon like it's and and it's and it's there from the beginning it's there from this pilot episode like literally every single genuine like or not genuine but like overt romantic relationship in the show is done in a way to either get back at Will or Hannibal from either party. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you can't get more explicit than that. Like, ha- <laughs> I I can't go into too much detail because that's for future episodes. But <laughs> come on. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, so I, I think that this this breakfast scene is is really our first real taste. Of what their relationship is going to be. Um, and so Hannibal and Will begin to sort of work together. Like Hannibal kind of tags along with Will while he does some investi- some investigating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> while he does some investigating. And Will is trying to track down or pin down maybe some potential suspects who could be the Minnesota Shrike. They've found a piece of metal um, in the lab on the um, body of Elise Nichols. And so they're able to determine that there are only a handful of like construction sites that use this metal. And so they're going to investigate to see if they can find anything in like employee records. And Jack is disposed in court. <laughs> <laughs> so there's... They're at this work site. They're looking through records. Will finds uh, a form that he thinks is incriminating. He's like, okay, this guy, this is our guy. Because he he had to sign a form to work at the site temporarily. And he put down his name and his phone number, but he gave no address. And so Will's like, that's suspicious. I can't imagine the amount of things that I've done that would make me look suspicious. I know, right? (laughs) 
know, right? I do shit like that without having a motivation. I I'm just lazy, you know? <laughs> so Will, Will uh, decides he's going to go check this guy out. And um, on his way out, uh, Hannibal kind of creates this accident. He knocks all the papers out of Will's hand and, and Will's got to clean it up and he's distracted for a second. And Hannibal... It's very like, oops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Run into your crush in the hall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Hannibal calls this guy, uh, Garrett Jacob Hobbs. Garrett Jacob Hobbs. Just say it really fast. Garrett Jacob Hobbs. <laughs> Garrett Jacob Hobbs. <laughs> they always say his full name. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Hannibal gives him a call to give him a heads up. Like, hey, the FBI is after you. Like, you don't know who I am, but, you know, we have an affinity and I'm telling you, I'm giving you a warning. And again, it's amazing because you can see in this moment, Hannibal doesn't really know why he's doing this. He's just kind of like, let's see what happens. So uh, then Hannibal and Will show up at... Garrett Jacob Hobbs's house. <laughs> and um, they end up in this kind of altercation. Um, it's carnage. <laughs> so they show up to the house and before they can even like knock on the door, they're just walking up to the driveway. Um, Garrett Jacob Hobbs shoves his wife out the door who's like been, her throat's been slit and she's just bleeding everywhere and she falls to the ground. And we have like a very startled will kind of like run up to her and is like frantically like trying to like touch her neck, but it's clear she's, she's dead. She's not going to make it. Um, And (laughs) it's so it's, it's genuinely comical because Will's like freaking the fuck out. And then we just see Hannibal just calmly, just like standing there, just being like, huh? Didn't know that would happen. Interesting. This is what he decided to do with his warning. Yeah. (laughs) What, not what I would have done, but okay. And then Will kind of rushes into the home. He's got his gun drawn. And uh, Garrett Jacob Hobbs has the knife to his daughter Abigail's throat. And he looks at Will and says, like, the most eerie thing that still bothers me. Like, I still don't know why he said it. He just looks at him and he goes, you see? See? And then he, like, goes to slit her throat and gets about, like, like a third of the way before Will shoots him in the arm and, like, shoots him back. And so Abigail falls to one side and then Will just kind of, like, unloads his gun in Garrett Jacob Hobbs. And he's, like, dying on the ground. He's been shot, like, seven times. <laughs> and then Will rushes to Abigail and is, like, trying to hold her neck together. And it's so bloody and it's so gruesome. I mean, that's one thing about this show. It's extremely bloody and it was on network TV. I mean, I think people, even at the time, commented on like, how did this make it on network TV? Like it really pushed the boundaries of violence level uh, for a network TV show. I think it is the most violent show I've ever seen on network TV. And it does it from the get-go. It's right there in the pilot. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even even the first couple minutes of the pilot when Will's kind of like imagining the murder of that the woman, like that's really gruesome too. And it's it's gruesome, but it also has that like element of like psychological trauma too, because it's implied that like that woman is alive and can feel everything. She just can't move. 
And so it's like doubled up like in the nasty. You know? Yeah. And we'll get into this as we go through the season and talk about episodes as we go along. But the they really escalate as yeah. we go. It's gnarly stuff. Like, yeah. And so back to back to this murder <laughs> that's or the attempted murder. Abigail's like bleeding out. She's freaking out. Will's like panicking. He's like hyperventilating basically, and he can't even like hold her her throat down. And we see from behind Hannibal kind of like walks in the room and looks down at them and he like cocks his head and he just looks at them very calmly and you can see the thought process of him being like i'm going to keep them i'm going to save her for will this means something to him and he walks up and kind of like pushes will out the way and like holds her neck together and i'm guessing he called an ambulance because they show up and abigail gets gets help Mm -hmm. yeah so the episode ends with Will and Hannibal in Abigail's hospital room, you know, they're both kind of holding vigil. They're like watching, you know, they won't leave until they know she's okay. It's kind of implied. They Um, look like a little family. They do. And the final shot of this episode is uh, in the, in the the hotel room, In, (laughs) in the hospital room, you've got Abigail in the hospital bed and you have Hannibal and Will kind of sitting on either side of her bed and they are, this trio, you know, there you can see again, the show operates so visually. Um, I love it for that. Um, but this final shot like establishes that this is going to be this triangle of relationships is going to be central to the show going forward. Um, that, that they're going to be connected. Yes. Yes. And, and almost implied, like you said, like they're going to be like a little family. Yeah. Yeah. If Hannibal gets his way, <laughs> a little fucked up family of murderers. <laughs> That's skipping ahead. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> That's uh, hashtag goals for Hannibal. Um, Why doesn't he deserve a happily ever after? <laughs> So that's our recap of episode one, Aperitif. That's a fun word to say. It is a fun word to say. All of the titles are really fun to say. They are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's our main recap. And then we want to end every episode with just a little section for miscellaneous thoughts. And if we want to think of each recap as our full meal, our little miscellaneous thoughts section can be our nightcap. So welcome to our very first nightcap. You are invited into the parlor. <laughs> into the or study. No, the, for The study. In, yes. Into the study. Into the study for drinks with the men. <laughs> to discuss random shit. <laughs> That we could not fit into the overall episode. (laughs) (laughs) So the first thing I wanted to bring up is that in this pilot episode, we are introduced to Beverly and... um, Beverly Katz. Beverly Katz. Um, She is like a fiber analyst. She analyzes fibers. Um, And she's kind of one of Will's friends in so much as he has friends. Um, And uh, so she's introduced in this episode. Yeah, and her she's introduced with her fellow lab coworkers who are known as Price and Zeller. And together the three of them kind of operate as like as much comedic relief as is possible for a show like this. And 
often their like little very dark quips are like directly tied to shots to Hannibal doing something suspicious. Yes. <laughs> so it's it's again it's visually tied as well as like narratively and like they have all of these moments where Price and Zeller will say something just like off the wall like guys get it together why would you say that there's a dead body right there that was a person and then it'll cut to like Hannibal eating said person <laughs> and it puts it into perspective nicely <laughs> <laughs> so it's Beverly who actually figures out the the sort of antler connection because she finds like antler fuzz in the wounds of antler of velvet dear yes. velvet yes and so then the stag becomes sort of a recurring motif um, that kind of starts to haunt Will because he has these like nightmares and visions and and that's kind of how it's communicated, you know, how much this case is getting under his skin. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we get right from the beginning, right from this pilot episode, we get this, the, the introduction of this stag. And it's directly connected with kind of like each time Will discovers something new about the crime the stag is kind of like it emerges in a different way and so this first episode we get the antlers first we see the antlers gore through the body of the elise nichols and then um by the end of the episode we see kind of like the emergence of a full stag begin to kind of haunt will in his nightmares and if you're if you're watching this for the first time and like following along with us after pay attention to the stag it's very important <laughs> yes yes we are going to try to limit spoilers as much as we can because i would love it if someone was watching the show for the first time and and um listening to our podcast as a companion so we are going to try not to get too ahead of ourselves and have too many spoilers and I feel like most of the ones we've we've dropped here have been vague enough where if you don't know, you won't know, you know. <laughs> That's the second time I've said that exact <laughs> sentence. If you know, you know, or you don't know. <laughs> you're either one of the men in this study having a nightcap or you're not. You're in or you're out. <laughs> I've clearly had many nightcaps, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have any final thoughts about aperitif before we wrap it up? No, I'm so happy that we're doing this and I cannot wait to get into the next episode next week. Yes. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Friends for Dinner. (laughs) Uh, We did not create a separate social media account for this this podcast because it is limited. And I feel like after a certain point, if you have too many, if you have a a social media account for every project. Like no one's going to follow that shit. So if you want to follow us, you can follow our accounts for our other podcast, um, which is a vampire film podcast. It's called Fang Club. And so we are going to sort of consolidate our social media. So you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Fang Club Pod, and you'll get the updates for this podcast, Friends for Dinner, uh, as well as the updates for Fang Club. If you don't want those, you can ignore them. But we highly suggest that content if you're enjoying your time here. Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, we're not going to be mad if you listen to Fan Club too. We're actually kind of assuming that if you're listening to this podcast, you found us through Fan Club first. So, but if not, welcome, and you should check out our other content. We're cool, <laughs> ish. <laughs> 
We will see you next week. We're going to be talking about episode two, Amuse Bouche.